Hello, manufacturing marketers. Today, I'm pleased to present you with another fine episode from the Cooler Ring Vault. This conversation with Sander Arts, founder of Orange Tulip Consulting, author and former VP and CMO with NXP Semiconductors, gets to the heart of how to tell a better narrative and stay away from the speeds and feeds style of marketing that plagues so many B2B industrial organizations. Sander also shares how listening to customers sometimes illuminates a hinge that can be used by salespeople in telling a product story in a way that truly differentiates. I hope you enjoy the episode. You're listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to the Cooler Ring. My name is Jeff White. Joining me today is Carmen Perry. Carmen, what's shaking? Uh, you know, you almost caught me in the middle of drinking uh, water. And uh, and I know that um, uh, for those uh, regular listeners to the show, one thing that you will have heard in some of our introduction to the show and when there's a, a lovely female voice uh, on the Cooler Ring and not just uh, Jeff and I droning on, it's a, a team member of ours, Floyd, who has a, a, a long a career in radio before joining Kula. And she's uh, given me the advice time and again that you drink water with a straw uh, when you're on podcasts. Um, but I don't listen to her, I guess. Yeah, I thought we banned <laughs> straws. I, that's true. At, at, yeah. It's not very ecologically sound, no, this advice yeah. that Maybe she's giving. We get giving. like stainless steel ones with the Cooler logo on them or Man, something. that paper straw business is just atrocious. <laughs> I mean, they they dissolve in the middle of... Anyway. Yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. I agree. Down with straws. Um, that's not what we're here to talk no, about. No, it's though. not. I don't know how we got over there. Um, yeah, joining us today, we have uh, Sander Arts. Sander is a global CMO, a consultant, author, a board member, entrepreneur, and advisor, um, you know, with a long and, and storied history, but certainly the, you know, the... Um, the reason he came onto our radar was a, a book that he helped co-author called Cut the Bullshit Marketing. And uh, I think, uh, you know, kind of getting close to our hearts in terms of uh, getting the crap out of the way. And we've been really, we've tried since the inception of the Cooler Ring to be almost G-rated in our language, uh, which is not in the nature of this firm and the people whatsoever um uh, but we're we're going to be tugged into an r rating i'm sure uh right out of the gate because we're just going to say bullshit 40 times in this (laughs) podcast so sander welcome to the cooler ring well thank you so much and i i really enjoyed that introduction i appreciate uh, uh, being on your show i mean we could be a little more politically correct by just calling bullshit bs um but i think the harm has already been done yeah, yeah no, that I... uh, that horse has left the stable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and for our listeners, it's also great to have Sander on uh, as a, uh, he's from in the Netherlands originally, although we've been living in the Bay Area for the last number of years. And uh, uh, the Canadians and the Dutch have a, a special connection that's gone back now uh, uh, more than 60 years. So um, that's uh, very, very cool to, uh, to have you on the show, Sander. Let's... Uh, yeah, we certainly do. Yeah, and I really appreciate um, uh, being part of your uh, podcast series. It's funny. Every time I'm in Amsterdam, I, um, it happens more often than not that I get berated by an elderly woman who's shocked that I'm not Dutch. Apparently, I appear Dutch, um, but my lack of ability to speak it is uh, evident. 
um, a mouthful of phlegm, I find, uh, helps uh, fake it a bit. But even then, uh, yeah. I haven't been very good. So Yeah. Um, uh, Sander, why don't you introduce our listeners to, uh, to you uh, and a bit of your background and uh, talk to us about the book that you co-authored, uh, Cut the Bullshit Marketing. Just give us a brief introduction to that, and then we want to dive in and unpack that quite a bit further. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so born and raised in the Netherlands, I worked for Philips, which is uh, a world-renowned organization, obviously. I learned a lot there. I worked there for like 12 years in the semiconductor division and then moved to the Bay Area, um, where I joined an American semiconductor company called Atmel, A-T-M-E-L. Turned out it was a very interesting company from a community building uh, capability point of view, and we may be able to talk about that later. Um, I left uh, because in, in an acquisition, right, sometimes executive management teams get eliminated. That's exactly what happened here. Uh, so I left along with the rest of the executives um, after the company got acquired and decided to be my own sort of free agent uh, and also decided to write a book um, uh, because I believed we had something uh, to say. So I co-authored this book, uh, to, to, to your point, with uh, two good friends of mine uh, back in the Netherlands who run uh, an agency uh, in Utrecht. Uh, you, you're probably familiar with that town as well. Um, and we decided to write something um, that had examples, um, but also was very pre- practical, had examples, uh, but also, of course, had some uh, theoretical framework for people to be able to build a fully integrated marketing plan um, by going through the book. So it's a little bit of a workbook. Um, uh, and I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to, to, with the fact that the book is being endorsed by all CEOs I ever worked for, uh, including um, a professor at Stanford University, uh, which, yeah, so we've, we've been blessed by the endorsements from people that um, are, are being held accountable for growing P&Ls. <laughs> and um, so it's been great um, that, that people have sort of dubbed us uh, with the ability to do marketing that adds value to bottom lines of companies. And that's no small feat. I mean, it's one thing to write a book and have it... Uh... Um, and, and with um, with all respect and deference to the creative directors who may be listening, it's one thing to have it endorsed uh, by a creative director or somebody who's more interested in um, um, or the artistic uh, endeavors associated with marketing. It's quite another to have the book uh, endorsed by folks, like you say, who have true P&L responsibility and in some ways live and die on the success that you're able to deliver or not. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we've all been in situations where the, the, the head of marketing uh, walked into walk walked or walks into a board of director meeting and you can tell you can tell by body language that people are relaxing a little bit and you go okay, well, I'm probably not the most important thing in this company. Uh, and people have the tendency to look at marketeers as sort of head of corporate entertainment. And I've always been irritated by that fact. Um, so I had the deep desire uh, with my teams, obviously, over the years to go and build marketing programs uh, that really that really added um, value in the form of revenue, preferably, um, to companies. Uh, and it changes the, the conversation, right? It gives you the ability to sit at the table, uh, which I did in my last uh, uh, company. And it gives, so I'll just do one quick quote from uh, Rick Klemmer, who's the president and CEO of NXP, 
who wrote on the back of the book uh, that this marketing approach helped take, take NXP from a top 20 player in the semiconductor industry to become one of the top five. Now, I realized that that wasn't me nor marketing, um, but I think it says quite a bit uh, around the capability of marketing to really um, add a lot of value. Well, look, there's no effort like that that isn't a team effort, of course, but um, I think we can all acknowledge that marketing must have played a a heck of a role in moving uh, that needle. Let's uh, unpack that a bit. Um, Please take us through some of the key uh, tenets of cut the bullshit marketing. And you can, I mean, it obviously comes through in the title, your uh, angst, if you will, with it's straight uh, shooting. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> marketers being considered the entertainers of the corporate world rather than actually delivering value. Um, so uh, take us through um, cut the bullshit marketing, how it differs from what you see happening in the world of marketing these days. And uh, let's uh, look at some examples along the way as well. Well, strikingly enough, or interestingly enough, even in my in my current um, engagements uh, with multiple companies, I find that in the manufacturing space, right? If we zoom in a little bit more, there are still a lot of people that do a whole bunch of very very traditional marketing, and and it's mostly people that are being driven by product marketeers who who promised their wives and friends that they would have a press release uh, about their latest product, uh, a lot of trade shows, right? So there are a lot of press releases, a lot of trade shows. And and it's mostly these companies are talking to customers that they already have, uh, which is, I mean, that's still a little bit of an art. Um, but uh, d- demand creation and building the, the right infrastructure associated with the ability uh, to create a whole bunch of demand with new customers, preferably, um, I don't see that a lot, right? So when when I when we wrote the book and we decided to to pick the title that we picked, we said, you know, there is a lot of bullshit uh, that doesn't necessarily add to the bottom line of companies. Uh, what do you have to do to sort of cut it, right, and use that money uh, to do something else, right? Because we've all we've all been in situations where you walk in and say, oh no, if if only I had an additional few million dollars to be able to do additional things. That's always a hard sell with uh, CEOs and CFOs. Um, so the premise of the book is: what do you what do you look at? Uh, what's what's the kind of conversation that needs to take place to be able to reinvest existing marketing dollars into something that has uh, a little bit more, um, yeah, potential of get, getting applause <laughs> in a boardroom because it's adding value uh, to the bottom line or what have you. I guess, how does that manifest itself? As we talk about, I'm not abandoning a focus on customers. I'm assuming you're not suggesting um, that, but rather just simply saying that's not a substitution for uh, demand-gen-focused marketing that can expand one's market Mm -hmm. share and presence. Um, So uh, I guess, what does that look like when the rubber meets the road? Um, So we've always... We've always went on a journey of building uh, what we call uh, integrated, global integrated, mostly digital, by the way, uh, marketing campaigns centered around um, narrative associated with the product, right? Like I said, so there's a whole bunch of people that will say, here's my latest, and I'll give you an example out of the semiconductor space, right? The semiconductor space, 
they keep bringing new products to the market. Uh, those products are always sold. Uh, it's probably a little too strong, but in in the, the majority of cases, those products are sold over the axis of high performance, low power, small footprint, right? If then the battle hasn't been won, uh, we will go and throw in price, which is probably the worst thing that can happen. Um, and that speeds and feeds marketing and communications to the market uh, is everybody is participating in, and it doesn't it doesn't cut through any of the noise. So in in the the examples also described in the book, we went and built campaigns around different kind of narrative. And you so think of technology competencies within com, within organizations. Think of uh, application focused kind of campaigns um, um, and what have you. And and those campaigns are being created together with the product marketing and business unit organizations and uh, KPIs are being set uh, between those teams so that everybody is walking in the same direction and has the same goals. Because this, of course, is a hand, right? You have to do this hand in hand with the product marketing people uh, because that's where the, the majority of the content needs to come from. And it's it puts quite a bit of pressure on organizations because all of a sudden people realize that they have to do way more than just write a press release uh, or put up a, a nice booth at trade show X, Y, or Z. I mean, part of this, um, I mean, part of what you're advocating for here is really just focus, uh, to focus on the, the, the sales and, and marketing effort in, 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 in even close to the same manner as you focus on say product development. Um, but it's, it's not really, I mean, it, it kind of goes to a thing that we've talked about on the podcast before, uh, you know, a lot of, especially in the manufacturing space, you know, you're talking about the sea of sameness where everybody has the same, you know, effectively the same quality, whether it's, you know, you're talking about the speeds and feeds of the semiconductors mm-hmm. or whatever, you're, you're trying to differentiate yourself on a few megahertz here or a few watts there, you know, but they're not telling a story yeah. beyond that and kind of getting to a place where there's true differentiation in the market. And I mean, you can, the, the horrible example that everybody always uses is Apple, but Apple doesn't compete on speeds and feeds. They yeah. barely even publish them. You know, um, they're just not talking about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, uh, and uh, Jeff's right. I mean, we've, uh, we've railed uh, against uh, the notion. I mean, uh, manufacturers aplenty are, um, you know, they, we have the best quality, uh, delivering exceptional service by the um, uh, best people <laughs> in the industry. Yeah. Um, uh, that the quality service people, the the QSP, and I, I think you know it's a really a, a QSP isn't a USP, right? Uh, okay, I, I'm going to write that down. I'm going to register the domain while we're online. Yeah, it just isn't, you know, and um, but people feel. Sander, I think when you say that, when you say, look, you need to move beyond QSP, I think sometimes what they hear is, you mean I need to ignore quality service and my people? Um, and how do I do that? And what do I talk about if I ignore that? And I guess, how do you answer them with that objection? What's your response to that? Um, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's there's a few responses, right? One is we've all been in sort of service-oriented marketing organizations, right? Which that's basically how all of these organizations 
uh, are the minute I walk into them, where the the, the, the business unit with the largest PNL in the company, right? So let's give an example, right? I've worked with people that said, well, you know, Sander, I'm 40% of the revenue in this company. That means that I need 40% of the marketing budget. And, and I've had conversations where people said, I, I don't see how I... Uh, uh, currently own 40% of the homepage, right? So I'm 40% of the revenue of this company. I need 40% ownership of the webpage. Right? So I'm going, yeah, that's not really what we're here for. Uh, this isn't a, my PL is bigger than your PL kind of conversation. Um, right? So <laughs> so that's, that's one. I go, listen, we're trying to build a story to the market that helps uh, sell more product, and in some cases, that isn't necessarily your individual PNL's story. Uh, so that's one. Then, secondly, the the feeds and speeds, or uh, um, the te- technical specs or quality, uh, to your example, uh, story will still remain. Um, we're we're just trying to build additional narrative over and beyond the, the speeds and feeds communication that is taking place in these organizations. Um, so, so I'm not I'm not advocating for getting rid of it because that would be complete it completely insane. Uh, but we're trying to to provide a different lens towards the market by taking a customer focused approach. Uh, in most, in some cases, in new markets, and say, hey, you know, if you were to package this thing, uh, taking into consideration your speeds and feeds, but maybe adding additional elements to the narrative, all of a sudden you have a very um, uh, appealing story to maybe existing, but also new customers. Well, and of course, you get if you truly are um, bolstered by those speeds and feeds numbers, uh, the the narrative can help get more eyeballs on those speeds and feeds specs. So, uh, yeah, in some ways, they they shouldn't. Uh, That's exactly right. Um, well. There's another element to these things, right? Most of these most of these marketing organizations and business units have the tendency to go and broadcast how great they are, right? So one of the things that I'm always trying to put into uh, the equation is just pure engagement, right? Because we all we always think we have something and we think we know what customers want and we think we know what, what they're making decisions on. And it turns out that once you throw something out there that has... Uh, the ability to be morphed by engagement and conversation uh, out there, it turns out that sometimes the value proposition is even different from what you had thought uh, it was. Um, and there's, a, yeah, there's multiple examples around that, but the um, uh, it, it also makes it fun, right? Because all of a sudden you realize that there's a whole bunch of people out there with opinions and views. And um, so if you open the channels and if you invite people to participate in the conversation, uh, uh, that really helps sharpen a value proposition or have it evolve over time. You're listening to The Coolering, conversations on manufacturing marketing. Don't forget to subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash thecoolering. That's kulapartners.com slash thecoolering. I'd like to... Um... You referenced NXP earlier and their moves from uh, their move from being a top twenty player to a top five player. Um, if if you had to 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 wrap your arms around the top two or three things that you feel really drove that migration and that ascent, if you will, what would you say that it, it, it was? And with the, all the benefit of hindsight being 2020 as well, you know, I, I always call that thing uh, uh, my uh, uh, unpaid MBA because you, you know the the 
<laughs> the history of the company was that it got acquired by a, a consortium of private equity uh, people. Now, they, they the private equity people are in for the faint of heart. <laughs> so I remember them walking in and, and I was sitting there very proudly managing a budget of m- multiple tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and they just kept coming in and asking me to uh, to cut it. And they, they didn't use the word bullshit, but they were essentially using the word bullshit. So we, we had to go down significantly in budget. And I realized that that was going to be a race to the bottom that wasn't going to go help us at all, right? And I didn't want to go and have to fire people. Um, so we, well, I mean, yeah, we if you have to, you have to. But I, I thought there was ways out of it. So we, we went on that journey of building these campaigns um, for us to be able to make sure that we could show uh, returns. Now, it takes a while in semiconductors because the typical design cycle is between 12 and 18 months, right? So you do something in the marketing side of the house and you generate a lead or what have you, and it gets handed over to sales. And then, of course, there's the typical um, uh, battle between sales and marketing where the sales guy says, well, I was already talking to this person and all that. And right, So it's hard to point at hard sales results associated with a campaign with a design cycle that is as long as it is in semiconductors. Um, but we managed to get on the journey together with the business unit uh, because, of course, people wanted us to be successful um, and, and build these campaigns where we could show um, uh, returns. Um, and a few of these examples uh, are described in the book. And then we repeated uh, uh, all of that from a, from a concept point of view uh, when I joined Atmel, uh, who was uh, at the heart of uh, Internet of Things and uh, a company that was uh, uh, manufact- designing and manufacturing microcontrollers. Um, so we repeated that process. Uh, and there's examples um, that are also listed in the Stanford case. So there is a whole Stanford case around the marketing journey that we went on at Atmel. Uh, and there's an example in there where a marketing campaign where we invested a, a few tens of thousands of dollars resulted in $30 million of uh, identified sales potential, seven of which uh, with new customers. Now, that's something that you can take into a board of directors. Look, you've, you've piqued my, my interest. Um, and uh, so I guess um, do the heavy lifting for me and talk to me about that case a little bit more. Uh, um, I, I mean, look, and, and, and we can obviously get greater detail in the book, but um, I guess pull that out for me a bit further. Yeah, well... Yeah, the, the interesting thing was the the angle that Stanford took when they approached me was a little. Uh, well, I'm a little cynical because I was born in the Netherlands, so it was pretty funny because the uh, the professor uh, who also endorsed the book, by the way, <coughs> came to me and says, "Hey, you know, you're in the semiconductor industry, which isn't necessarily the most sexy industry in the world." He goes, "You seem to be have taken you seem to have taken a business to consumer kind of approach to a." manufacturing organization in an industry that isn't perceived as sexy and by the way your your target audience is it doesn't like marketing right we all know that the double e's are very rational people and they um, uh, supposedly make decision based on speeds and feeds right which we talked about already so um, so essentially he said you know uh, unsexy product unsexy market um, uh, what the heck have you been doing 
uh, to be able to to have built uh, because we built the one of the one of the largest social media footprints in the semiconductor space uh, within that company. He goes, "What have you been doing?" So that thing has been documented um, um, with for months uh, and and resulted in a business case that's still being used at Stanford, but also. Carnegie Mellon and INSEAD back in uh, in Europe, and it and it walks people through what it is that you could be doing uh, when you're being faced with um, a commodity product, essentially, uh, and how you could make uh, how you can make that stand out uh, in a market that is incredibly crowded. I wonder how many examples it's going to take um, of supposedly very rational people making very critical decisions with their heart through the lens of narrative with their heart rather than their heads. Exactly right. I wonder how many examples it's going to take before that gets through all of our heads. Well, it was funny because I, so this is a few years ago, right? So that particular organization at Mel didn't have social channels that were open to the people. So I joined, I said, okay, we we need to start blogging, which is pretty basic. And this is 2012, right? So just, just be reminded of that. Uh, And we opened up the channels and we said, Hey, you know, here we are on social media kind of thing, but it was difficult for us because we didn't have a lot of content and and the first blog posts, uh, right? The first blog post is always being read by your dog and your mother-in-law. And then the second, your dog, your mother-in-law, and maybe your brother. So that takes a while. Um, but but we, were, we had customers tweet to us how they loved the product. And I, and I took that, those particular tweets into a board of director meeting. And I said, hey, you know, you guys think that these people make decisions based on speeds and feeds, but apparently they have their heart into this thing because they tweet us the word the word love associated with our products. I go, that means that there is something else going on as opposed to, um, right, people just sitting behind a desk making a decision on uh, the lowest power kind of solution. And then if we, so we started digging a little deeper and it turns out that people really appreciated the simplicity um, and the ease of use around products, which goes, right, that's already one layer over and beyond your speeds and feeds. And we started tapping into that. Um, we were also lucky enough uh, to uh, have had uh, the, the core of um, uh, a product called Arduino, which is probably the largest uh, development uh, tool, uh, uh, the, the most widely used development tool in microcontrollers in the world, right? People start companies on all of that. Uh, so we were also able to tap into a very active community of people, uh, but these people didn't necessarily choose the product because of the speeds and feeds that I would get on my desk over and over again from the business unit. Turns out that they had all to do with uh, uh, ease of use and simplicity and a community around it of people where people could freely share lines of code so that they could quickly go to market. I've been, I mean, very often when you work with a, with a company and of course you look at their external messaging, it's, you know, it can be fairly easy when you're kind of um, on the outside looking in, um, you know, you can kind of read the label if you will and, and, and be able to, um, to see if they're the, the type of, of firm that, that is heading down that um, <laughs> QSP road rather than the USP road, as we talked about. Um, but then I find um, 
that it's when the, the conversation shifts to the sales folks and you ask about what objections they get in the sales process and and or and what you ask them about the shape of that sales process and when and, and when the only thing that comes up is a price objection i feel that that's when you're almost certain that you know you're dealing with a company that needs this help from a differentiation perspective yeah. is that is, is that what you find i mean is it you know do you find that that this kind of it, it, it permeates that without the if you will the differentiating story in that narrative uh, you know, it's just, this, like you say, it's this race to the bottom. It's just commodity and it's just price and boring. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yeah. Well, oh yeah, for sure. Right now, most salespeople that I know, and I have a lot of respect for the people that I know and sort of friends, but they are not that great at storytelling to begin with. Uh, and, and of course have the tendency to be a little linear and transactional by just by sheer nature of their job um, outside of the person, obviously. Um, yeah, they need to be helped by marketing uh, and need to be equipped with the right stories and the right content and the right collateral. And, and and because in some cases they are fighting the battle, right, in the trenches. And that's sometimes or mostly a price thing because everybody has driven each other uh, down, the, uh, uh, down, the value, <laughs> down the value chain. And it's hard to go and get out of that particular equation. Uh, so we, we, we've tried to do that um, in my companies. I, I, I've, al- I've also tried to instill narrative within these executive teams where we said, hey, you know, it, sometimes it, it isn't about price, right? Sometimes it may be about things like how easy it is uh, that we are to do business with, right? So if you're easy to do business with, which isn't necessarily happening in the hand-to-hand combat of salespeople versus customers, but just in systems and websites and availability of content and all of that uh, helps a great deal and gives a lot of air cover to salespeople that are fighting the day-to-day battle, which is, which is pretty difficult. I think that's a solid perspective because of course uh, we don't want to beat up on the sales folks. It is a difficult job. No, but uh, I don't think I've ever heard a better description than hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. Like it, it really is. Yeah. You know, and uh, and I I do think it's interesting to um, you know to, to know that the 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 goal isn't perfection there. We're not going to get away from a price objection or price being a a dynamic of the sales conversation. That's not that's not where we're going to get. But if na- narrative seeing you know narrative can get us to where it's less of an issue or le- brought up less frequently, and that ought to be considered a win. Yeah, and I think so. Just for the record, right? So I never, I especially when you sit in an executive management team, it's not my goal to go and create camps within an organization, right? So I said, head of marketing needs to build the stage for people to be able to perform and 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 look their best in front of customers, right? The head of marketing needs to make sure that the salespeople get incredibly rich, right? Because marketing people like rich friends. Um, um, so I've always, I've always collaborated across the organization because I know that the sales guy needs to close it. Right. And, and marketing people sometimes aren't closers. And I know that the product marketing people uh, are very much needed because that's where the, the, the deep intellectual, uh, and, and intellectual capability, but also knowledge around the product comes from. That's the only place where real, uh, product marketing <coughs> information can come from. Right. So I've. I've never created camps in any of these organizations. Like I've, I will, I've always said, listen, I like rich friends, uh, and that's a pretty good premise to operate on. 
Yeah, that uh, it's it's uh, hard to get a salesperson to argue with that motivation. <laughs> um, uh, Sander, this has been a great chat. I, I thank you for uh, your perspective and uh, and uh, your encouragement to our listeners to uh, cut the bullshit in their marketing and uh, and and get focused on 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 delivering uh, that that serious ROI and breaking down those barriers um, uh, of thinking about organizations as B two B versus B two C, and um, and stepping out of that narrative and into something a bit more progressive. And uh, I think you've uh, you've done a great job today of uh, of showing the way there. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for having me. And if if people want to engage a little deeper, um, um, I I welcome them to do so. Um, uh, it's, I, I would be a little shallow of me to try and sell the book, so that's not what I'm after. But if people want to go and find me, I'm on all social media channels, uh, and I love conversation and engagement with people, uh, and I'm available to chat. We'll be uh, we'll be sure to, to to link that up in the promotion of the episode, and, and we won't <laughs> force you into uh, pimping your own book. We're happy to do it for you. I um, would encourage anyone to, uh, to to take a read. I think there's there, you'll find lots of practical examples and lots to learn in there. And uh, um, and uh, so thank you for uh, for joining us on the Cooler Ring today, Sander. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com/slash/the-cooler-ring. That's K-U-L-A-Partners.com slash The Cooler Ring.